Hazel, and this is Disagreeable Subjects, my show about what I find interesting, amazing, fantastic, or terrible, and sometimes all four. So let's set the scene. The sun is shining on a warm, early April day in Seattle. My dog is nine months old now. Coronavirus is all the rage, and no one on YouTube is allowed to talk about it. And a couple weeks ago now, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential race. Just in case you're immediately thinking, oh no, political post, never fear, you're only kind of right. Really, this post is about our tendency to fall head over heels in love with a politician who is telling us what we want to hear, and why that's not only dangerous, but makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit. So Sanders dropped out, and his followers were predictably and totally understandably upset. I'd be bummed if I really liked a candidate for president and wanted to vote for them, but they didn't make it. But the issue we're talking about today is not the understandable upset of those who wanted to support someone they thought was the best candidate. It's the hero worship of Sanders that causes people to massively overreach in both claims about Sanders and who he is, and in their entitlement about how they are telling other people who perhaps didn't support Sanders how they need to be behaving now. So I do feel like the need to like point this out as a caveat that, yeah, Sanders isn't in the presidential race anymore, but I feel like these same enduring hero worship things continue. The hero worship of Sanders is not going to end just because he's out of the race now. And you can honestly copy and paste almost everything I say here principally onto Trump, onto AOC. Like, we are treating them the same way, and it's super messed up. All right, so let me illustrate this point I made about Sanders supporters telling other folks who were not Sanders supporters how they need to be behaving. There was many a post on social media right after Sanders pulled out of the election, stating something to the effect of, like, sure, I'll support Biden in the long term, but today is just a day to mourn for Bernie. Again, that's fine. I read this as someone who liked their candidate taking a second before they jump back on the campaign trail of or campaign train of somebody else, you know, that totally makes sense. But it really did start to cross a rather sinister line when folks started to demand that campaigning basically cease for them. There was a plethora of posts on social media, media, social media, what am I talking about? Okay, there was a plethora of posts on social media saying things like, don't try to talk to me about Biden today. Today is a day to comfort those who are grieving and similar sentiments, more or less saying that others need to cater to their feelings about their candidate, regardless of whether or not they supported Bernie or actively opposed him. Well, I'm sure when folks started saying this, they were thinking that they're simply admonishing those who are not being sensitive to their trauma. Realistically, it's not their job to be sensitive to your trauma in a game that you lost. Like that sounds really harsh, but the idea that it's a na- somehow a national day of mourning now because the candidate you liked didn't actually get to be, you know, the party's candidate. Eh, like, I just don't think that's a that's a that's a claim you get to make. So sure, if you have a friend that knows that you love Sanders, and they come to gloat over the fact that he's no longer in the running. They're being a jerk. But the idea that others should be required to actively comfort you. That is not something I can imagine a Sanders supporter stopped to do or would have stopped to do if they had won. In fact, more than one Sanders supporter, the same people who are posting demands for their own comfort like this, 
were literally the same ones who would happily post about John McCain's actual death as though that were trivial and totally fine to, you know, be basically existing in glee about. Their hurt matters when their candidate lost, but the hurt of their political opponents who lost a hero to death does not, apparently. I'm not saying this is some big theoretical thing. These are literally some of the same people I saw posting both of these things. What this says to me is that these particular supporters of Sanders believe that they care more deeply about their candidate than anyone has in history, and far more menacingly, they believe their regard for their candidate was so morally right that it gives them the moral authority to tell other people how to behave. Now, I've said this show is about hero worship, and it totally is. Because this kind of behavior, this demanding that others acknowledge your feelings and beliefs and cater to them, this assumption of entitlement to the regard and consideration of others is something I have experienced before from from a, a group of people. You do know I was an evangelical Christian for a while, right? I never liked the Apostle Paul. He always seemed to have a pretty major issue with women. And of all the early conversion stories, this seemed the most duplicitous to me. He had a vision, so now God picked him, I guess. He seems like a man who liked to have power over the way people thought. He liked power more than he liked wealth, even. He was intolerant of those who opposed his viewpoints, both when he was persecuting Christians and afterwards when he became one. I always have thought that if Paul was alive today, he would either be the leader of an anti-thinking church like Mars Hill in Seattle, the kind that at the peak of its operations had bodyguards to escort you out if you got a little too dissenty, or he would be a fairly successful cult leader. For the uninitiated, Paul is one of the big reasons why there are rules against women's leadership in a lot of churches. The whole man being head of the family thing also came from him, as did a lot of stuff that wasn't so into gay folks. Paul recommends against sexual activity and getting married generally, but if you can't be as repressed slash pure as he is, then you can get married, provided you maintain the proper gender balance of man and woman and the woman remains deferential. I'm being facetious a little bit. There are totally intelligent Christians who are not obtuse, and uh, I know a lot of them. Many of them would say perhaps one of the, one of the following things. Maybe they would say that much of what Paul believed was a suggestion for the churches he was writing to, Um, so it wouldn't be put onto the level of something said by Jesus. So there is a a difference in some Christians' mind between what was said by Paul, what was said by Jesus. A lot of these rules made by Paul, they're like, no, we don't need to stick to them quite as ardently. They might argue that his dictates on gender had to do with what was happening in the church at the time. There were specific problems, and his suggestions were designed to be specific solutions, not always general principles. Another argument I've heard from extremely reasonable Christians uh, is that for his most extreme takes, like that it's better to never marry, he included caveats to them himself. He simply said that this was what he thought was best, or he at least acknowledged that everyone can't be expected to act like him. So again, I'm being a little facetious about Paul, and I've seen like really well-reasoned discussions about him. All of these are reasonable responses. More than one believer I know will even include some kind of side joke about how, yeah, Paul seemed to have some serious issues dealing with people, particularly women, but a lot of what he wrote was also quite beautiful. You know, in Galatians 3.28, Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye all are one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, while it sounds contrary to some of his dictates on genders definitely being separate, the gist here is that no one group can claim authority over all of Christianity. It was verses like this that actually drove some of the early abolitionists against things like slavery. If we are all one in Christ, then who has the right to own everyone or dictate against their will that which they have decided is good for them? In Ephesians 1.3, Paul writes, Joy, peace, faith, hope. These spiritual blessings are ours if Christ lives in us. These spiritual qualities are indestructible because they have their source in Christ, who is always with us. Because we cannot lose Christ, our spiritual blessings are secure. What a lovely notion that that which gives us hope, whether it's Christ or family or just generally an indomitable human spirit quality, it's not something that can be taken away from us. It's verses like these that have given people comfort in times of desperate poverty or oppression or persecution. No matter how irreligious I become or how much I disagree with those who follow the Christian faith, I would not want to diminish some of these really incredible verses and ideas. Here's the thing about the Apostle Paul. If you allow him to be just a man, a flawed man, then you can see that he's done a mixture of things, both good and bad. He is not a god. He's a missionary and a preacher. When I attended Undisclosed Baptist Church and subsequently attended Fairly Christian University, it was not generally the more level heads, though, that prevailed when we were talking about this. The number of times questioning of people like the Apostle Paul was vehemently and viciously shut down, and the accompanying silence of reasonable reasonable people made me think my place must be somewhere outside the bounds of this faith. How could I truly explore a faith I was not allowed to question? How could I trust the leaders of a faith that ignored historical atrocities, inaccuracies, and injustices? Simply put, when they pushed the narrative that the Apostle Paul and everything he wrote in the Bible was perfect because their interpretation of the Bible told them so, they were engaging in unquestioning hero worship, which I have capitalized here, which you can't see. That's the unquestioning hero worship TM. They were choosing not to question. They were choosing to elevate a man rather than the ideas he had, some of which were good because they thought that's what was required of their religion. Their fragile faith didn't allow them to even acknowledge obvious realities, like the fact that women in the church, like myself, could do a whole lot more than make cookies and look cute. I ain't no help meat. If they were willing to be inspired by the man but not worship him, who knows, I might still be in the church. How silly would it be to imagine that any Christian could be able to demand of others that they don't question? I mean, some definitely try. They'll say that their beliefs are sacred and it's hurtful when they're attacked by others. Those things are fair. They can claim those things. They'll argue that their faith is one of peace and love and salvation and that other people must just not understand it. Debatable. They'll use the fact that worldwide Christians are legitimately still persecuted a rather horrifying amount, as though that should protect them from criticism. But it would be deeply perverse if they were to demand that others comfort them instead of criticizing them, and if they were to believe that it was their right to demand that. The New York Times ran a piece right after Bernie pulled out of the race titled, Bernie Sanders Was Right. Goodbye to an Honest Man's Campaign by Elizabeth, I think it's Brunick. It's hard to commentate on because the very assertion that Bernie was somehow an honest person, if we define honest as not intentionally misleading millions of people, is only something people could say if they're lost in a socialist bubble. 
I'll pull out a few quotes to dive into. Bernie Sanders has ended his campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination, which is a tragedy because he was right about virtually everything. He was right from the very beginning when he advocated a total overhaul of the American healthcare system in the 1970s. He remains right now as a pandemic stresses the meager resources of millions of citizens to their breaking point and possibly to their death. He was right when he seemed to be the only alarmist in a political climate of complacency. He is right now that he's the only politician unsurprised to see drug companies profiteering from a lethal plague with Congress's help. As one of my favorites, Christopher Hitchens, often said of religion, and yes, I know the irony, him being a socialist, as he put it, um, but he often said of religion, exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. He was right about everything is a massive claim. As evidence... She starts with the fact that he wanted to overhaul the healthcare system in the 1970s. She doesn't acknowledge where his ideas came from, or that during this period he was idealizing some of the most violent and brutal regimes in history that later collapsed in upon themselves. She doesn't acknowledge that he never once said that his support for these regimes was misplaced. It's hard to articulate how unspeakably evil the Soviet Union truly was. Americans who try to point out what should be obvious— that it was not so great, are often met with a, but Americans are just as bad. To those people, I would say that your selective reading of history in the last century must be so distorted by what you want to believe that no opinion of yours can be based on fact. Under Stalin alone, best estimates assume that 10 million civilians were murdered in order to maintain totalitarian control. Even if we assume that every death of a civilian during the Vietnam War was entirely the fault of the United States, you reach about 2 million. Lest you think I'm justifying the evil of the Vietnam War, I'm not. I'm simply saying that even if we conjure the greatest evils in recent American history, they in no way stack up in magnitude to that of the USSR. Additionally, I think there's a difference between war, backwards policies, and false incentives unleashing the monsters within a soldier, and a dedicated national program of death, starvation, and violations of non-thinking orders being death. You want to know the 1970s Bernie Sanders? Then don't selectively decide what he endorsed. To quote the article, he remains right now as a pandemic stresses the meager resources of millions of citizens to their breaking point and possibly to their death. So we have a Republican president who doesn't know what he's doing. Have you seen mass evictions at this point in the pandemic? There are many articles threatening it will come and we will see if there's a huge upswing uh, later at some later point in this pandemic. So to be fair, this remains to be seen. But many local municipalities have already put moratoriums on evictions in place. Who would know better than local governments when to remove those moratoriums when this is over? Who better to be responsive to the needs of the citizenry than those that know them best? None of Sanders' plans allow for local control of really anything. Functionally, this means we'd be paying for far more than we need to at a national level if Sanders or someone like him had been in charge during this pandemic. The argument that economic devastation may kill many people is exactly why some on the right are arguing against complete shutdowns of the economy and want to get it moving again as quickly as possible. The more we know about the virus and see trends improve, the more this seems like a reasonable suggestion. People getting the economy moving again are not usually coming from the socialist contingent. This feels like an argument against Sanders more than anything else. Pointing out that he was an alarmist in a sea of political complacency doesn't really mean anything. Are you suggesting that we should act like there's an unprecedented global panic all the time? Or that there should be? 
that governmental interference in our daily lives right now, which depending upon where you look is actually trending in a libertarian direction, is what should always exist. Saying that we need it in an emergency so so it should be like this all the time is basically the same argument that people who sleep with a handgun in the nightstand make. You may need it if something terrible and utterly unpredictable happens, but you probably won't. Making policy assuming the worst usually leads to authoritarian outcomes. This is fear-mongering, not Bernie Sanders being right. Claiming he's the only politician unsurprised Big Pharma is profiteering during a pandemic would assume she's interviewed all other members of Congress or somehow has insight into their actual feelings that she couldn't possibly have. This is just flailing and overreaching. Going back to the article. In fact... Both of Mr. Sanders' presidential campaigns, beginning with his announcement in 2015 and ending here, were about dignity. Not only broad human dignity, Mr. Sanders' relentless focus on the grim lives of the American poor, sick, and disenfranchised, is perhaps the greatest pian to the notion in modern political memory, but also the daily, personal sort we grant one another each time we tell the truth. My response to this whole paragraph is, gross! Let's start with his relentless focus on the grim lives of the American poor, sick, and disenfranchised. This phrasing would make someone who has never been to America assume that it's basically Oliver Twist. It's so not. Again, if you want to pretend that it is to suit your political agenda, then your exaggeration of reality belongs in a Monty Python sketch, not a serious political discussion. This is not to say that there are not Americans who struggle, but exaggeration, like hero worship, makes you melodramatic. It doesn't make your point compelling. And to say that he's somehow championed these poor, sad people in their grim lives is to be completely misreading his support base. While his supporters on average make less than Biden's, it's largely a function of their age. They tend to be overwhelmingly below the age of 45, and yeah, there's a correlation between the money you have and how old you are. This phrasing would kind of imply that he had more multicultural support than he did, largely because people of color are often the ones glossed over and screwed. Maybe the author didn't say this explicitly, though, because he had a less commanding lead amongst Latinx than either Obama or Clinton did before him. And a major reason that he didn't receive the nomination was Biden's support amongst black populations. So realistically, age and income bracket mattered more here than race and ethnicity did. And let's talk about income bracket. Yes, Biden trailed Democratic voters who made below 75000 a year. That's usually the headline. But let's dive into those actual numbers. For those who made $10,000 or less a year, Biden was a satisfactory candidate for 48%. Sanders was for 62 So yeah, he had some more. From those who made 10000 to 25000 a year, Biden was a satisfactory candidate for 47% and Sanders for 63 So there we see like a similar, fairly wide gap. From 25000 to 50000 a year, Biden was satisfactory for 49 and Sanders for 56% of uh, Democratic supporters polled. And from 50000 to 75000 Biden was satisfactory as a candidate for 53% of respondents and Sanders for 55%. So Biden trailed Sanders, but certainly wasn't a repugnant choice for those demographics that make up the majority of Sanders voters. By the time you're asking someone who makes more than $25,000 a year, the difference isn't even in the double digits anymore. Stats are great, but I don't want to sidestep the fact that no dispossessed person wants to be condescended to, patted on the head, and informed that a politician knows their interests better than they do. That was frequently the feeling given to those who didn't care for Sanders. 
It takes more to be a champion of the lower class than promising them stuff. I'll grant the writer this. I didn't know the word pee in before. What makes me feel truly ill about this article is the last statement in this paragraph, where she states that the dignity of Sanders is the daily personal sort we grant one another each time we tell the truth. First, let's talk about the truth. On the campaign trail, he continually mischaracterized the Swedish economy, pretending it fit into his definition of socialism. He went out of his way to praise and defend brutal regimes because of the social programs that they had that he liked. He never came out with a reasonable way to pay for his proposals without walloping the middle class financially, and he dramatically underplayed the impact this would have on their quality of life. This is not the picture of an honest hero running an honest campaign. It is a truth that he underplayed the horrors experienced by millions upon millions of people to advance himself. This wasn't something he didn't know. This wasn't a mistake on his part. He chose this. This is truth. What I'm saying right now is truth. Are you going to grant me dignity because I am saying it? Or has your hero worship of a deceitful politician telling you what you want to hear made it impossible for you to do so? I don't need to go on with this article. It's more of this. It's more bending over backwards to make a god out of a man. It's an insult to the intellectual power of all who read it. It's lie after half-truth, after sycophantic praise, after half-truth, truth after lie. Here's why that matters. Pretending the Apostle Paul was infallible drove me away from a whole religion. It came to me that those who followed this religion, at least in this denomination, were deluding themselves on purpose. They had nothing valuable to give me, and the salvation they preached was likely to be as delusional as all of their other claims were. Pretending Bernie Sanders is the Bernie Sanders of this article, is someone you should be able to claim others should pay deference to, is to worship him. If this is your attitude towards Sanders, you're buying into a faith, not promoting a political program. Notice I've not once mentioned whether or not I agree or disagree with pretty much any of his specific policies. But I don't trust Bernie Sanders supporters enough to even share that with them. I don't want to bolster the political image or beliefs of anyone who indulges in this political dogmatism. Ironically, it's Karl Marx who said, The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. I'm calling upon you to give up the illusory happiness of having found a hero. Nothing requires that I comfort you in your illusions. Rather, I call on you to give up those illusions. You don't need them. You don't need to pretend this man was somehow anything more than he is, and your insistence that he is somehow heroic or even really that good hampers your cause perhaps more than you know. So that's the end of that long rant. Now is the time in the show when we more or less take a cool down from the hardcore ranting that I just did and talk about something that I didn't hate. Many things in the world are a bummer. So every week I want to highlight something I didn't hate in my weekly segment, Something I Didn't Hate. So I really love the movie The Death of Stalin, and I'm going to do a special episode for Patreon subscribers about that movie. And I feel like talking about any kind of hero worship, it makes it really appropriate to kind of go back and watch this movie. It was created in 2017. It was written and directed by Armando Iannucci, who, if you know me at all, uh, my favorite television show of all time is called The Thick of It. It's actually the British show that Veep is based on. And uh, he wrote that show and created that show. So it's very fast-paced. Um, but the premise of the show 
is that uh, Stalin dies and the Central Committee of the Soviet Union needs to figure out who's in charge now and what do they do next. And of course, when you're in a situation where you are required to basically hero worship someone, where you can't say something real and truthful out loud with, you know, without punishment, it kind of leads to everything being really ridiculous. And in that kind of ridiculousness, there's humor. So it has a bunch of folks you'd recognize in it. Uh, Steve Buscemi is in it as Nikita Khrushchev. Um, uh, Simon Russell Beale is a British Shakespearean actor who plays quite definitely the villain character. Um, but then there's Jeffrey Tambor. There is, uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python and Jason Isaacs, perhaps better known to some as, uh, Draco Malfoy's dad. He plays the head of the Russian military and he is fabulous. Um, yeah, so it's definitely... It's a poignant movie in moments, you know, it doesn't under, it doesn't pull any punches about the cruelty of this regime. Um, but it also like, I don't know, there's a lot of different thoughts I have about this movie. And, uh, I think that if you have any enjoyment in this podcast at all, you should definitely watch that. So yeah, I thought that was pretty okay. And it's nice that there are things in the world that seem perceptive and that can make us laugh even when things are ridiculous and are required to be ridiculous like it always is in a totalitarian regime thank you for listening to disagreeable subjects if you want more content check out disagreeablesubjects.com follow me on instagram at disagreeable Liesl. Uh, follow disagreeable subjects on facebook at www.facebook.com slash disagreeable pod or follow me on twitter at ltadler to it's like l underscore t-a-d-l-e-r to be honest the twitter is mostly jokes if you really love me and want to support the podcast then head over to my patreon for as little as a dollar a month you can nab gems like me talking about the death of stalin with my mom that's on my bonus podcast disagreeable movies where friends family whoever's available and i talk about politically themed movies and it's awesome so go to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash disagreeable subjects have a lovely week goodbye everyone Smell.